You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast. This month, guest host by Caitlin Cox. Hello, and welcome to the August edition of Heart Sounds. It's Caitlin Cox, your guest host for this month. While your usual guide to all things cardiology, TCTMD's managing editor, Shelley Wood, is traversing the globe to track down stories just for you. That's right, we've hit medical meeting season. The 2018 ESC Congress is wrapping up, and London Vowels and TCT are just around the corner. But before I launch into all of our latest and greatest news, let me say thank you on behalf of the TCTMD editorial team. As Shelley's mentioned in recent episodes, we're striving to take a top spot in the People's Choice Podcast Awards. Thanks to your efforts, dear listeners, we're now officially a nominee in what's called the Skeptic's Guide to Science and Medicine category. Right next to two NASA podcasts, no less, you've got us, Heart Sounds. Fingers crossed, the winners will be announced next month. Until then, you can have a listen to all we've been up to in August 2018. Let's kick it off with the ESC Congress, which has been on everyone's minds this week. Shelley, along with TCTMD reporters Michael Reardon and Todd Neal, was there in Munich to digest all the data, talk with cardiology's finest, and bring the stories to you. Shelley, what's been the biggest news at ESC? Hey, Caitlin. I am having myself, I think, a well-deserved beer in the beer garden to send you this audio. But yeah, earlier in the meeting, I would have said that the biggest drama here at ESC was the patchy Wi-Fi, which was driving everyone crazy. But that seems to have gotten better towards the end of the meeting, and we've actually had a lot of fun here. I'm trying to chase down folks to talk about what has ended up being a lot of negative trials. Some of the most eagerly awaited studies here were large, randomized, and potentially practice-changing trials. But with few exceptions, they have not panned out as hope. So let's start off with ASCEND. Todd and Mike both covered different arms from this trial. This was a study of more than 15,000 people with a 2 by 2 trial designed to look at the role of aspirin and the role of omega-3 fatty acids for primary prevention in people with diabetes but no evident cardiovascular events. A number of recommendations have come out against omega-3 since the study was launched and the lack of benefit with fish oil supplements was confirmed again here. The aspirin finding should give people more pause. Ascend found that while aspirin had a modest impact on serious vascular events, it had an even greater effect on risk of major bleeding. Jane Armitage from Oxford University, presenting the aspirin results, pointed out that a number of guideline documents should be revised on the basis of these findings. A second large primary prevention study looking at aspirin in people at moderate 10-year risk of developing cardiovascular disease was also presented here. ARRIVE showed no benefit of aspirin versus placebo in this group, but also suffered from major crossovers, hinting at the difficulty of studying a decades-old drug that's widely available over-the-counter on top of modern-day primary prevention meds. I covered a much smaller hotline trial here that also came up empty-handed. This was Mitra FR, a 250-patient randomized comparison of the Mitra clip versus best medical care in patients with severe functional MR. Mitra FR found no benefit to the clip in terms of reducing mortality or rehospitalizations for heart failure. This one for sure was a disappointment to people who really believe in this therapy for reducing mitral regurgitation and are actually using it in patients now who have functional MR. You'll have to check out my full story to hear why people think this study is by no means the final answer. It's just a few weeks before we see the next randomized MitraClip study, COAPT, which has a somewhat different design. That's coming out at TCT in San Diego in September. 
lots more I could tell you about. Some rivaroxaban trials, new pure data, drug-eluting balloons, and a handful of antiplatelet therapy pre- and post-PCI stories. No joke, there has been a lot of negative studies. But my sense is that the information these have delivered is being met with enthusiasm, a negative finding being just as informative for doctors in practice. You can find all of our studies from ESC under the conference tab at tctmd.com. And Caitlin, thanks for all your help stateside in getting all this news live on the site and looking pretty. And thanks for taking on the Heart Sounds podcast this month. Over and out. Laura McEwen, meanwhile, has been hard at work here in the U.S., not only covering news for TCTMD, but also revving up for TCT, where she and I put together the Meetings Daily newspaper. Earlier this month, she contributed a story to TCTMD about a recent statement from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force that focused on ECG screening and atrial fibrillation. Based on a detailed review, the group said there is insufficient evidence to recommend either for or against the tool in this setting, and said that the balance of benefits versus harms in asymptomatic patients is unclear. Laura spoke with a member of the task force, Michael Berry, from Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, to find out why they created the report, which is the first of its kind. Well, this is a new recommendation for the task force. We ha- we've dealt with the use of EKGs for other purposes, stratifying um, risk of future coronary heart disease, for example, but we haven't addressed uh, screening for atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. And um, atrial fibrillation is, is a common problem, the most common cause of arrhythmias in older folks, and uh, the, the uh, evidence is that treatment with anticoagulation, at least for higher risk people, substantially reduces stroke risk. So I think it was logical to say, well, it's time to see what the evidence shows about screening for atrial fibrillation Uh with EKG. One of my favorite things about summer is getting to host our annual Jason Kahn Fellow in Medical Journalism. For this year, our fourth, we had the pleasure of working with Lucy Hicks. Lucy, who is originally from Boston, is earning her master's degree in journalism from NYU's Science, Health, and Environmental Reporting Program. For the past few months, she's been learning how to interpret studies, tracking down amazing interviews, and writing news stories. One even turned into something larger, a feature article about soda taxes and why they do, or might not, matter. Now I'll hand over the mic so Lucy can tell you herself about how she juggled this project. Thanks, Caitlin. This summer, one of my biggest projects started out as something quite small, just a regular news story about soda taxes in Chile. I had a lot of questions. What are soda taxes meant to do? And if they work, will they translate into better health? How do soda taxes in the United States compare to those around the world? Specific to our audience, should doctors care about these big picture policy debates? In the process of getting answers, this turned into a feature article. Sugar-sweetened beverages like sodas and energy drinks are an easy target for government intervention. They hold little to no nutritional value and contribute 39% of the total added sugar in the American diet. For example, just one 12-ounce can of Coke exceeds the American Heart Association's daily limits for added sugar. No surprise, drinking sugary beverages has been linked to weight gain, diabetes, and even increased risk of coronary heart disease and general mortality. Policymakers hope that taxing these beverages will decrease consumption as well as raise revenue. Berkeley, California was the first American city to implement a soda tax in 2014. Since then, 
six other cities around the country have passed these taxes. Early data suggests that these taxes decrease soda consumption, but experts question whether these initiatives are enough to really improve cardiometabolic health. I talked to a wide range of people to get their views on the viability and potential impact of soda taxes. I hope you head to TCTMD to read my whole feature. For now, have a listen to part of my conversation with Dr. Dariush Mazafarian, Dean of the Tufts University Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. Soda is just one part of the problem, and it's not even the majority of the problem. It's an obvious place to, to start because, you know, there's really no need to have sugar in, in water in a drink, and there's other things that can be consumed in its place. It's pretty easy to replace with either, you know, seltzer water or artificial sweeteners or, or natural low-caloric sweeteners, but it's not the panacea. It's not the, you know, end-all and be-all of food policy. So, you know, what, again, what I would like to see is the next level is this should be about more than soda. It should be about a range of foods that are unhealthy. And most importantly, that should be paired with using all of the revenue to make healthy foods like fruits and vegetables and nuts, plain yogurt and fish, whole grains, beans, less expensive. So that's what's been missing is, you know, all of the soda taxes so far in the United States and even internationally are not paired to making healthy foods cheaper. Another feature article on TCTMD also drew a lot of readers this month, Yael Maxwell's in-depth look at how cardiologists learn. In addition to developing a great survey to chart the trends, Yael spoke with several physicians about how they've made the transition from paper journals to digital resources and how they handle the hazards and rewards of social media. Be sure to check out her story and the survey results online. They're both great reads. And finally, there's me. Along with my usual editing, I continue to craft my own articles for TCTMD. My favorite topic, one that's not without controversy, is conflicts of interest in medicine. Thanks to the 2010 Sunshine Act in the United States, there are now actually numbers on what financial links individual doctors have with industry. These numbers don't give context for why physicians make the choices they do, but the transparency certainly sparks debate over what's okay and what's not. Sometimes I start to get a sense of deja vu from all the reports coming out of the Open Payments database. The most recent, a paper from JAMA Surgery, looked at the gap between self-reported disclosures and the official record. As others have found, the numbers don't always align. Here, U.S. physicians with the most financial connections to the medical device industry omitted potential conflicts of interest relevant to their research papers more than one-third of the time. I spoke with James Kirkpatrick, who chairs the University of Washington Seattle Ethics Committee, to get his take on what's happening. Listening here, you'll get a taste of what it's like to be a TCTMD reporter on the go. The interview was recorded in a New York City taxi. You'll be happy to know I made it to JFK just in time for my flight, thanks to the fearlessness of my driver, who once worked behind the wheel of a New Delhi ambulance. But back to business. To start, I asked Kirkpatrick why people aren't always thorough in their disclosures. Here's what he had to say. You know, it's hard to say because none of these studies can really investigate motives, and it's probable that the vast majority of people, it's its simply an oversight. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's been pointed out in the past is that the time frames um, are not always aligned in terms of what is required, and people's disclosures do change over time, yeah. and that may not act, be, be adequately captured. 
To be clear, this isn't the first time the gap has been identified, but Kirkpatrick agreed with me that it's important to keep revisiting this topic. This is something that continually has to be brought before the public. It's not something that goes away, and therefore it shouldn't go away in the press either. Something that everyone should be reminded to be really careful about. And in our busy lives, you know, through oversight or or for other reasons, Mm -hmm. we tend to to lose sight of the importance of this. And it's I think you're reporting, and clearly papers like this uh, keep it in the public eye. That's just a taste of the whirlwind that is late summer at TCTMD. Soon you'll be getting reports from Shelley at London Valves and from all of us at TCT, which is being held in a new spot, San Diego. I'll admit, it's my favorite time of year. Meetings give the editorial team not just a chance to work closely together, but also the chance to meet many of you in person. If you have ideas for what you'd like to see on our website or just want to talk, don't hesitate to say hi. From a distance, the internet will have to suffice. You can find me on Twitter, where I go by TCTMD underscore Caitlin, or through my bio on TCTMD. That's it for now, but take heart. There's more to come. Thanks for tuning in to Heart Sounds.